0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. It's uh, good to be back here this morning. Last weekend, Grace and I were down in Devon, taking a weekend for some churches down there. Redeemer Church Plymouth, which uh, started then Redeemer Church Tavistock, and more recently Redeemer Church Saltash uh, with them. It was was such an encouraging time. Four years ago, uh, Redeemer Plymouth went through some real difficulties, and I was involved in trying to um, process that and help that and it was a very painful time and it was wonderful to be with them now four years on to see how God has blessed them through difficulties and they've come through to real fruitfulness and one church now three churches and two other church plants that they were introducing and talking about last weekend so uh, terrific to be with them. Uh, those weekends like that church camps are great times to be together, fellowship, socialise, have fun together, build community. Uh, of course we have our church camp to look forward to next summer, not November, in a caravan park in Paynton, but a wonderful spot in the New Forest. I hope you got that in your diary July 14th to 16th next year. If it's not in your diary, get it in there. It's going to be such a precious time. And then next weekend I'm up in Glasgow with Ian, Ian Lindsay Kennedy at uh, Glasgow Grace Church, our dear friends there. Um, and that's my last trip of the year, and also. I'm not traveling nearly so much next year because of moving to two congregations and leading the congregation all the road. uh, Just next term, I'm going to be rooted at home, and home is a good place to be, and that's really the theme of the message this morning. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We're in this series we call Prepare at the moment, preparing for uh, a new season of life in January when building work at Alder Road is finished and we start life in two different congregations and we're seeing a number of themes in that from this letter to the Corinthians and today's theme is about home and and home is a four letter word with a lot of meaning and emotion attached attached to it, I wonder... Kind of word association. What words you associate? What feelings you associate with, with? With the phrase home, it might be that home is somewhere which to you is a place of real security and and real creativity. Perhaps you think of your home as a place where you feel at home, where you feel safe, and where you're able to express yourself in terms of how you decorate and prepare your house. And this time of year. Maybe you're the kind of person who's working hard and thinking about Christmas decorations and how to repair your home so it looks festive and beautiful and all the rest. Maybe for you, your association with the word home is a bit different. Maybe you think about your home and you think about all the things which are broken and need to get fixed, all the maintenance that needs to get done, all the bills that have to be done. Maybe for you, home isn't such... Your house maybe is more of a problem that it seems and a blessing. Maybe home is a place of conflict, that rather than being a place of safety, home can feel a threatening place. You go back to and there's conflict there. Maybe even your experience as being one of going home means going back to abuse. Home can contain many different thoughts and feelings and associations. We, We of course think that being homeless, we know, is a terrible thing. We think that having a home is a basic human right. But Home is a complex concept. Now, churches have homes. We, by the grace of God, have this home, this building here on Ashley Road, and uh, we're a a two-home church in that we also have our building up at Alder Road. And uh, we're, of course, preparing at the moment especially for that, and as we are now just a few weeks away from when we want to start with a congregation in our building at Alder Road. That is going to the wire in terms of those building works, and we do need to pray that they get done. The builders are finishing for Christmas on the 21st of December, and I think it's gonna go right to the wire of the 21st of December. The, the two main sticking points at the moment are doors and floors. Say it with me, doors and floors. Easy to remember, those things you need to pray for. The problem with the floor is that the new building it's got a thick concrete floor, underfloor heating and it's, even though it was laid in the summer, it's just taking forever to dry out and you can't put the flooring down on the floor until the floor is dry. So, good news is as of Friday, the floor in the loos is dry enough to get the vinyl down, which means we can put, put the toilets in and stuff, which is great. The main area is still not quite dry enough, so we need to pray that dries out. The more serious issue is the door at the front, facing onto Alder Road which is an arched door. And the order for that was placed in May, but it still hasn't arrived. And not having a front door is a bit of a problem, also has knock-on impact in terms of works which have to be done around it. So if you can pray doors and floors, that'd be great. And we do want the handover on the 21st of December. Now, as we are preparing the building at Alder Road, a home for that congregation, and as you perhaps are preparing, thinking about your home, how you're preparing that for Christmas, we need to think about our true home and the, the, the claim I want to make this morning, the faith claim I want to put to you is that we are never fully at home until we are at home with the Lord. That's, that's the faith proposition I want to put to you today. We're never fully at home until we're at home with the Lord. That No matter how much you might feel at home in your home, you're never really home until you're at home with Jesus. Now, the section of the letter we're in of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has been talking about the reality of current troubles. Chapter 4 is all about current troubles and the hope of eternal glory. And here in chapter 5, he then goes on to describe, paints a picture a bit more of what that future glory looks like. And, and the thing is that whenever the, uh, the authors of the of the, of the Bible, the different books in the Bible, when they describe what eternal glory looks like, there's always a struggle for metaphor for language, because how do you describe the indescribable? How, how do you describe what we is beyond description and so there's always a struggle for language, but there's a clarity that we know. We started off this morning by reading the creed. We believe these things, and we say that in faith, and faith can be difficult. we can be afflicted by doubts, it can be aspects of the christian faith which we might wrestle with more or less it might be that you're not a follower of jesus and you might be questioning in here questioning the whole thing entirely but we make these statements of belief we speak faith to ourselves and one another i believe we believe as the apostle paul says here verse one of chapter five of two corinthians we know we know that we know these things And so what I want to do this morning is is make this faith proposition to you. We're never really at home until we're at home with Jesus. And that we need to speak faith to ourselves and to one another. And see something of what is promised us in Christ forever. And the way that the Apostle Paul does that in these verses is through a series of contrasts. He says, home is what we're looking for and home is, is not this, home is that. And it's some of those contrasts I want to draw out over the next few minutes. First contrast is between tents and buildings. The image that is in, probably in mind here is the, is the experience of the people of Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. For 40 years, the people of Israel didn't live in homes, they lived in tents. And probably after 40 years of living in tents, they felt that the tent was home, And that was the problem, because the tent wasn't meant to be home, they were meant to go home, which was the promised land where they would have homes, instead they were wandering as nomads living in tents. And the problem for us is parallel to that, that's why this is a helpful metaphor, because we can think that what we have now is what is most solid. It feels real, your body is real, the stuff is real, the the solidity of what's around us, that can feel real, and what is there can feel vague. And I guess for the Israelites in the wilderness, the thought of the promised land at times probably felt vague. The reality was the tents and what they were doing there and then. And the promise felt perhaps vague. And we can feel that about eternity with Jesus, resurrection life. Now feels solid, real. Then, there can feel vague. And that's why the apostle uses this metaphor of tents and buildings. Because actually the the reality is that this existence which feels very solid, is like a tent. And in comparison with a house, a tent is by definition temporary and flimsy. A well-built house, in contrast to a tent, is so much more solid, robust, strong and enduring. And that's what we're meant to see, that actually this, where we are now, how life is now, with all its apparent solidity, actually is like a tent, and what we will receive is like a building. Now the imagery that is used in this passage can be a little bit confusing and we also have the problem that whenever we talk about heaven, eternity, resurrection life we're always wrestling with the different mental images we have which have been fed to us by movies and art and poor Bible teaching and all kinds of stuff and we have always struggled to wrestle with the angels with harps floating on clouds and all that kind of imagery. We struggle with... The pictures uh, that are painted and we should see in the Bible. And and we need to see what is not being said as well as what is being said here. And and one of the key things we need to see is that what is not being said here is that we're trying to escape the body. It's not that the, the body is a tent which we're escaping. No, the contrast that is being drawn is between our bodies now which are like tents and the bodies we will receive in the resurrection which are going to be like buildings. There's a contrast between what is temporary and flimsy and between what is solid and permanent. That's the contrast that's being drawn. The Christian hope is not a disembodied spiritual floating existence somewhere in the. somewhere. The Christian hope is of embodied resurrection life on a world made new. That's our hope. That's what we look for. A building that God is preparing for us, a house that God is building. And we to anticipate it knowing this is what awaits us. We know, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. And see how confident Paul is about this. He says, we have a building from God. He's not yet in the building, but he says we have it. He's so confident that it's his, it's as if he already has it, even though he doesn't yet have it. Our current bodily experience is often one of affliction. That's what he's been talking about in, uh, throughout chapter 4. In chapter 1 of the book, he talks about going through an experience that felt like the sentence of death. Often, life is about affliction. That's our experience. But we, as good as already have our resurrection bodies, the building. And the thing that we need to see is that God is building this house for us. It says this is a work of God, not of human hands. And what we need to see here is this is a a reminder, we need to understand of how salvation works, theological term. We're justified by grace. The reason that we, the, the way that we are made right with God is by God's action. God justifies us. God receives us. God forgives us. God reconciles us to himself. God sanctifies us, declares us righteous, justifies us. It's just as if I'd never sinned. How? Because of the work of Christ in me, not because of something that I do. Now, the the problem is that we tend to live, our cultural narrative, the narrative of the Corinthians as well, our very parallel cultures in many ways, is that we think that we, I am responsible for constructing my life and happiness. And that's how we tend to live. Just think about how strong that narrative is in the way that we do life, that I need to construct my life, security, happiness. I do that by the house that I live in and the clothes that I wear and the career that I build and the schools that my kids go to and the activities that they take part in. And think about all the kind of memes, slogans that circulate in our culture of follow your heart and live your dreams and "Live, tell your truth. And it's all about I have to construct. I am responsible for constructing my life, security, happiness. And the word of God comes and says No. God is the one who can secure your life and happiness. God is the builder of the house. The Christian gospel is this, that God in Christ secures our life and happiness for us by the work of Christ on the cross and his justifying of us. And idolatry is when we humanly try to construct our own life and happiness. Think about what Jesus said when the disciples came up to him and said, look how magnificent the temple is. Jesus said... This temple was made with hands, and after three days I shall build another temple not made with hands. God is going to build a house, not the work of men. God guarantees for us a building. We know if the earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building built not by human hands, built by God. Hallelujah. Second contrast is between clothes and nakedness. Paul says he groans, groans, waiting to be clothed. So something similar in Romans 8, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Not the abandonment of our bodies, the redemption of our bodies. And the imagery here is, again, about the Israelites. The Israelites, we're told, groaned when they were slaves in Egypt. You're a slave, you groan under the tyranny of your slavery. And the Israelites were not meant to be slaves, they're meant to be free, and because they were in this place of slavery, they groaned until God heard and rescued them. And we experience groaning as well. I was talking to some of the older folks after the first service, and just some of the groans they've got-not moans, but just groans because of the reality of life and the things they have to deal with. Think about Derek Staple at the moment having chemo and radiotherapy for the cancer he's got in his face. There's a, a, a groaning because of the afflictions that we feel in our body. If you're young and healthy, you probably groan less. I think if you're sick, or you get, as we get older, the, the groans kind of multiply. Things are not as they should be. And Paul says this is a kind of nakedness. And we want to be clothed. And uh, you might have In this room, there's probably different feelings about nakedness. Probably some of you are much more comfortable in your bodies. (laughs) Others of you like to be very wrapped up. Um, This isn't really about that. The the, the point, biblically, is that, biblically speaking, nakedness represents shame. We see that in the story, right at the beginning of the story, Adam and Eve. They realized they were naked and they were ashamed. Why were they ashamed? Was it because they needed to... Stand in front of the mirror naked and learn positive body image. No, that's not what it's about. It's not not about about positive body image. It's about shame. It's about vulnerability. It's about exposure. That Adam and Eve rebelled against God and suddenly realized how exposed, how vulnerable they were. Naked, exposed, vulnerable, weak, frail. And we can feel something of that nakedness, our frailty, our shame. People carry shame about all kinds of things. A sense of, sense of exposure, sense of vulnerability. And what we're told here is that at the resurrection, we're going to be fully clothed. We're going to be clothed in our resurrection bodies. We're going to be delivered from all our shame, all our vulnerability, all our exposure. At the cross, Jesus hung naked, covered in shame, in order that we might be clothed and stand unashamed before God. That's the message of God's grace to us. Now we grow, now we're burdened, At the resurrection we won't be. The third contrast is between mortality and life. When I came out this morning, it was raining, as it seems to be doing a lot at the moment, so I put on a coat, so I overclothed myself. And the imagery here is of life overclothing mortality, covering it up. Mortality. Will be overclothed with life. Isaiah twenty-five eight. He will swallow up death forever. That uh, verse is what Paul's referencing here in one Corinthians, the first letter to Corinthians chapter fifteen. There's a a long chapter where Paul riffs at length about resurrection life, and it's all focused around this promise in Isaiah. He will swallow up death forever. It's important for us to see it. Life wins. There's a victory that's going to be celebrated eternally. Mark. Seyfried, a Bible commentator, says about this, Death is not erased but conquered. The memory of God's victory over it shall remain to be celebrated. Now, that's something to get your head around. That in resurrection life, we won't forget death. There'll be a memory of it, but the memory of it will always be that death is now defeated. Our current experience is of the victory of death. The people we know and love and care about Die. And we look at the world and see war in Ukraine and whatever else is going on and we see the reality of death. At the moment, death seems to have the victory and we speak about death in those terms. Death always wins in the end. But in resurrection life, death will not win. Death will be utterly defeated. And there will be a celebration of that. The reality is that now we are always moving closer to death. From the moment you're born, you're getting closer to death. But in the resurrection, we shall eternally be moving further away from death. Jesus has been moving further away from death for 2,000 years. And in the resurrection, you and I, through Christ, will move ever further from death. And when we speak of death and the resurrection, it will be simply to remember Christ's victory over it. It's been swallowed up by life. It's the promise of the Gospel, what a promise. The fourth contrast is between deposit and completion. The reason you put a deposit on something is in order to guarantee that you will then possess it. And when you have paid the deposit on something that you really want, there's that sense of relief. It's secured, it's done. It's that moment in the torturous process of trying to buy a new house when you finally at last, the solicitors, what are they being paid so much for? At last, get their game together and exchange of contracts happens. You say, yes, the house is mine, but you're not yet in it. You've still got to wait for completion. And there's that sense, there can be that sense, if you've paid the deposit and you're waiting for the thing to come, can be a sense of painfulness, of, 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 of frustration as you're waiting because it's mine, but I don't yet have it. And we live as Christians somewhat in that tension. And the Apostle Paul says here that, The Holy Spirit is the deposit that guarantees what is to come. This means that we are meant to live in the reality of knowing the good of that deposit. We don't yet have what we will have, but we do have the deposit and that is good. We have the person of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And so we do want to know the presence and the power and the fruit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit at work amongst us. As a people, we need to experience God's Holy Spirit At work in and through and amongst us part of the reason why it's so important for us to gather like this because as we gather as we worship as we hear the word as we encourage one another we get a sense of the Holy Spirit's activity amongst us we we are reminded again of the deposit which guarantees what is to come we look for that activity that work of the Holy Spirit on the day that Christ comes again we would experience God's presence fully now we experience it in measure because we do have the deposits of the spirits at work amongst us. The fifth contrast is between faith and sight. We are confident. We are always confident. We know, says Paul. Now, this is not the confidence of being confident. It's a confidence of having confidence, and that's different. Some people just are confident, other people are less confident, but this is a confidence not about being confident, this is a confidence you have, that you are given. We're given a confidence by God. Confidence that comes from faith. Confidence that comes from knowing what God is preparing for us. And that means that we Christians live differently. We are to live by faith, not by sight. Now, in, this, in our Bibles we're using, uh, the NIV is translated as live by faith. More normally, that's translated as walk, walk by faith. And, and I think that's probably a better translation, actually, because it's a, it's a common biblical metaphor. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is a walk. That's what the Christian life is. It's a pilgrimage. It's a journey. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, just random perambulations, Actually, it's a journey, it's a walk, it's a pilgrimage which has taken you somewhere. That's the point. When the Israelites left Egypt, they did wander for 40 years, but it was a wandering with an end in mind to get to home. And we are walking, and sometimes life can feel like you're just wandering in circles, but actually, you are walking with a destination in mind to be at home with the Lord. We walk by faith. And we don't walk by sight, Another way that can be interpreted is by appearances. We're not doing things by the appearances of the world. Because we have the deposit of the Spirit, because we know that the tent of the body is going to be replaced by a building built by God, we see things differently. That Things for us are not just how they appear in the world, but we walk by faith. We have a faith which shapes our life and how we see things things, how we understand reality, that we know that what is apparently rock solid is just flimsy and compared with what will be ours in Christ. That requires faith because at the moment we don't see Jesus. One day we will see Jesus and we won't need faith anymore. There'll be no need for faith, all doubts will be gone, we won't need faith because we'll be in the presence of the Lord. Now we do not see Jesus face to face as we will and so we need faith and we need to speak faith. We need to say to ourselves, we know, I believe, we believe. We need to speak to one another faith. We need to encourage each other in faith, in Jesus. We walk by faith, not by appearances. The sixth contrast is between home and away. Being with Jesus is something that clearly the Apostle Paul desires very much. It's something which he desires so much, he says that he would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And again, this is an area perhaps we need to dispel a little bit of confusion. Paul isn't saying that he wants to leave the body. He's already made that clear. What he's looking for is the resurrection body. He's looking for a building. He's looking for clothes. What he's describing here is what theologians call the intermediate state. This is the time between our deaths and the resurrection. The time between our deaths and when Christ returns. It's at the resurrection that we'll be clothed. But between death and the resurrection, there's the intermediate state, what we normally call heaven. And the way we need to think about this is that the human life, even the longest human life, is very short. And then our experience of heaven, well, all, those, all the saints in heaven have all been there much longer than uh, they were ever alive. That's a, a longer time. Angie, put that next slide up. And, uh, but then resurrection life is gonna go on for eternity. And that's the way that we need to understand how things are organized. That we live now, we die, we go to be with the Lord, and actually it's much better to be with the Lord, it's better to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And this is why when saints now die, we weep but not as others weep who have no hope because we say, hallelujah, they've gone home to be with Jesus. And that's a better place. So Paul says I'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord Because you're with the Lord. But what ultimately we're looking for is a resurrection life where we are at home with the Lord and where our nakedness is finally covered, where we have received the clothes and the building that is ours. Heaven, as we normally think of it, is not what we are ultimately destined for. There's a sense in which the saints in heaven are still somehow naked, away from the body, but at home with the Lord, which is good, but not as good as it will be. What we anticipate is the building that God has built for us. And then the final contrast we see here is between good and bad. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We have this hope of resurrection, but that doesn't mean that we do a detour around the final judgment, no, the Hope of resurrection life runs right through the experience of judgment. That's what we say. It's what we said as we read the creed at the beginning. We believe that he's coming to judge. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. There's two things go together. And none of us gets to avoid this. Each of us, we must all. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's going to be a judgment of our entirety. Our entire meanness, our usness, all of us. There's gonna be a judgment of not only the things we've done, but actually who we are, that my attitudes, my aims, my motives. There's gonna be a complete exposure, a complete nakedness before God. I, me, in my entirety, must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now that sounds profoundly intimidating and shaming. And I think it's a sense in which we should feel that, and actually as we seek to share the good news of the gospel with those who don't yet know Jesus, there's a sense of, should be this sense of holy fear about what judgment can mean. But for those of us who know Jesus, actually our overwhelming sense as we consider the judgment to come should not be one of terror, but should be one of joy. The Psalms and the prophets often speak about this. Psalm 96 is an example. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Why? For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. What this promise says is that the judgment of God is such good news that even the trees and the sea are rejoicing over the prospect of God's judgment. For those of us who know Christ, the coming judgment, there is a sort of a holy fear. There should be about it, but it's a joy-filled holy fear. It's a completely inadequate example, and I've never even done it, but I imagine it's a bit like standing on... The Victoria Falls and that famous bungee jump and getting ready to go, that sense of terror but also joy. For those who've done it, that's what they report. (laughs) And you get caught at the end. (laughs) You don't die, you get saved. And I think at the end of the ages, it'll be something like a holy bungee jump. (laughs) Completely inadequate, probably sacrilegious analogy that just came into my head. (laughs) Of standing in the Lord's presence, completely exposed but then being carried into joy. Why? Because the judge has issued his verdict. And the restored earth will shout hallelujahs of praise and gladness when the king restores things to how they should be. Our destiny is a building, it's clothes, it's home. That means it's good news. That means that God's judgment for us is good news. So we're preparing a home here at Gateway. We're preparing a home. We have this wonderful home here on the Ashley Road, and we're preparing another home up at Alder Road. But far more importantly than that, and far more certainly than that, God is preparing a home for us. We know it. We know this. That's why we could say as we said at the beginning of our service, we believe. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Worldwide Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. We believe these things. God is doing it. God is building the house. God is preparing a home for us. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for your death-defying death. Thank you that you have conquered death and that because of your resurrection, we have hope that we will be raised to new life in you. Thank you that, as often in this life, we do groan. We do feel burdens in our bodies. And Lord, we, we, we groan waiting for the redemption of our bodies, Lord. We, we feel it. We feel the, the, the burdens of the world. Lord, we anticipate that day when you come again, when the judgment is made and everything is set to rights, and we are welcomed eternally into home with you. Lord, help us, to, help us to have this eternal perspective. Help us to anticipate these things. Jesus, help us not be so numbed by the narrative of the world that we lose sight. Help us not to be tricked into thinking what we have now is the solid reality when actually it's just a, a tent in comparison with the home that is our house with you forever. Help us to see these things with clarity, that we might live in a way which does honor you and speak of the hope we have. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to take uh, communion as we uh, come back into worship now and sing our next song. I invite you to come to the table to take the bread and the wine. Uh, sometimes we do this. We say, come back to the seats and we'll eat and drink together. Today, just take the bread and the wine and in your own time, take it. As you do that, I'd encourage you to express, articulate, speak out faith. Maybe you're, maybe you're wrestling with doubts at the moment. Speak faith to yourself. We know, I believe. Speak it to yourself. Give thanks to Jesus that what you're taking, the bread and the wine, what it represents, his body and blood, broken and shed for us, his death and shame that we might know life and forgiveness. And give thanks to him for all that means that he is building a house in which we will dwell, a home with him forever. So let's stand, let's worship, let's celebrate communion together.